Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, we're bringing you a special release, COVID-19 rapid update with Hamish Douglas. Many of you will be aware of Hamish via the two previous podcasts we've recorded with him. Hamish is the founder and portfolio manager of Magellan Funds Management and very well-known investment markets as Magellan has been one of the most successful international fund managers in the Australian market with their flagship fund having a compound annual growth rate of more than 12% since inception. In this podcast, we talk about how Hamish has steered their flagship international fund through the global pandemic that's gripping the world at the moment and what he sees as the risks going forward, both economic and geopolitical, which I think you'll find fascinating. I do remind everyone that this podcast isn't designed, nor is it specific advice. I encourage you to get any specific financial advice before making any investment and of course reading the PDS and listening to the disclaimer at the back of this recording. Um, Please keep your feedback coming through. You can reach me at david.clark at codacapital.com. I really appreciate all the feedback we're receiving and suggestions. It's much appreciated. I hope you enjoy it and stay safe. Hamish, thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope. It's, we've had you on, uh, this will be the third time, and normally we've done it each year in about September, but uh, given the unusual circumstances, we've done a little series for clients uh, and listeners of the podcast around uh, the thoughts of the leading minds in wealth management, such as yourself, um, around COVID-19 and what's going on. So thanks for taking time out. It's what's, a, am sure, a very busy time for you. It's a pleasure, David. Always great to be with you. Hamish, perhaps we could kick off if you could describe to us what you've seen and what you have done uh, since, I guess, about the 20th of February, where markets really started to react to uh, COVID-19. And I I guess the preface I would put on that in my mind is, roughly speaking, the MSCI World Index fell by ballpark in US dollars, 34%, and has now bounced back about 25%, leaving it down about 17%, or if you're just for Australian dollar, around 15%. So it's been a a wild old ride. Um, How have you managed um, your investments through that time? Uh, Well, first of all, I'd say, David, uh, from the outset here, is this is a classic black swan event. Um, You know, I've often quoted to people the type of black swans that will happen in our investing lifetime would be a global pandemic or a global sort of bioterrorism event in the world. And we're witnessing that at the moment. And, and I'd say before we did anything in the portfolios, our mindset is design portfolios that can deal with the crisis that you don't see coming. Um, you know, be prepared for the unprepared. Uh, things you, you're just not seeing coming, but things that are predictable, you just don't know when they can, can happen. So did we predict this? No, not about its timing, but is it in the viewfinder? Yes, these events are in the, in the viewfinder. And the portfolio actually held up very well. Um, and we've taken some action since then. And it held up very well, even though we misread this initially. And, and I'm being very honest there. When, when this first struck and we first started getting the data, we were really looking at what the World Health Organization was saying and what China was saying. Uh, here and we were analysing past 
health crises, avian bird flus, um, MERS, SARS obviously was, was one, and how those developed and many other instances were. And this looked like it was going to be a localised epidemic in China uh, initially. And the markets were fairly benign and we were, we were fairly relaxed, incorrectly, but fairly relaxed. But as it started to spread and it really started to spread, if you remember, first of all, into Korea uh, and uh, Italy in particular, and then it looked like it was going to be something much more global and a, and a pandemic. So we really started to think about what that meant. Uh, and there was no real rule book for knowing what this meant. The last one was in uh, 1918, 1919. I don't think any of us were sitting there in markets <laughs> evaluating it um, uh, back then. And things were still pretty different to what they are now. And uh, once we got a clear picture that we were going to have to contain this via effectively extreme social distancing and effectively shutting economies down, we said, whoa, 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 this could be very large indeed. And once we got that picture, which wasn't immediate, it was into this valuation phase, we then took action to substantially de-risk the portfolio. So we were, and the portfolio had actually held up very well through the volatility, even though we hadn't de-risked. And that's by design of running a lower risk portfolio. Um, but then after that, we've taken further actions to de-risk. We've gone from 6% cash to over 15% cash uh, in, our, in our strategy. We have sold down things I would describe as more cyclical. Uh, so we're, we're much less invested in luxury. We have the payments networks uh, uh, to uh, today. Uh, we've taken down emerging market exposure in the portfolio, but we're still over 80% invested uh, in, the, in, in the strategies. We're very comfortable with the portfolio uh, as it sits here today. And it's actually held up very well in these uh, in, in these markets, but we got it wrong initially, and 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 that's just how fluid this situation was. But the portfolio construction did its job um, in the early phases of this. And Hamish, there's been a lot of discussion about whether this is going to be a V-shaped recovery, uh, quite quick, or a U-shaped recovery, or what this is going to look like for investors. I, I think you've written about and spoken about. Um, three main things and, the, and the, the, the duration of the output gap, which is how long is the, the economy shut down for, how long are people off the tools for, uh, what the policy responses are, and then lastly, what are the lasting permanent changes, which I've, I've kind of think about when I talk to clients about that is I say, you know, businesses are being Zoomified. They're never going to be the same again because people are going to do things differently or they're forced to digitise. Let's push that to the back. But maybe if you could talk to to the listeners about that output gap and the duration of that how are you thinking about that at the moment is this something that you see that is going to stretch on for longer than first anticipated or what's your view well the, the question is is no one knows uh, charlie bunger was quoted in the wall street journal uh this week and he said everybody talks if they know what's going to happen and nobody knows what's going to happen and I think there's a lot of truth in that in, in that statement. The, the output gap is is the 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 missing economic output as economies are shut down. And of course, the longer that goes on, the larger the amount of this sort of missing level of economic uh, activity. Central uh, banks are trying to provide ample liquidity so businesses don't go bankrupt. They're trying to provide lending facilities, cross currency swaps to make sure other countries aren't running out of US. Dollars were being pretty impressed with what they're doing 
uh, so far, we've seen some very large programs very much aimed at the consumers around the world to making sure that people still have wages or parts of their wages in their pockets. But, but businesses are, are suffering a, a huge loss of cash flow uh, here. And the longer that goes on, the potential, the greater the damage that will be done. And if businesses are very impaired with more debt coming out of this, they're most likely to take action uh, to cut back on expenditure, cut back on investment and cut costs and therefore hire fewer people. And also out of this, the longer it goes on, the more the consumers may well change their behavior. We know out of the Great Depression, the Second World War, our grandparents had very different consumption patterns to patterns that we had. Uh, are we at that stage yet? Very hard to tell. But if this went on for a very extended period of time, you could see those consumption behaviors. And what, what, what I would say, there's four potential exit paths from this. The first would be the classic V-shaped economic recovery. We have a short and sharp downturn. I mean, people just go back to their business. We've crossed the bridge. Activity picks straight back up. I would say that's very unlikely. I, I don't think the policy response has been enough. And actually, I think the output gap is going to be longer in duration to enable that to, to happen. Even when we try and open economies, things aren't just going to instantly go back to normal. At the other end of that, that bridge would be a depression. Uh, I think outside emerging markets, a depression is very unlikely. The central banks are talking about it being very unlike, uh, unlikely. Our consultants, Janet Yellen and Kevin Walsh, believe it's unlikely. To, to occur, and therefore you're really talking about what shape of a recession we're going to have. It could be a fairly shallow recession, or it could be a very deep and prolonged recession. Um, I don't know. I, I actually don't. I, I, I think it's pure speculation, given we don't know how long this is going to go on for, and what the exit may look like, and how lasting consumer behaviour change will be, to really guess where you'll be on that spectrum. But to, you just need to understand that the feedback loops here can be very powerful and very damaging. If we go on for long enough with high unemployment, it's almost unimaginable in those circumstances. House prices won't get hit. The wealth effect of house prices uh, leads to more unemployment. More unemployment leads to lower demand. Lower demand leads to further cuts in business expenditure. It leads to more credit defaults, leads to more uh, bank losses. Uh, more constrained bank lending. So you can see circumstances where it could become very ugly. And I, I just don't think it's possible at this stage, judging between a shallow recession and a very prolonged and deep uh, recession, all of the things I could, all of that spectrum I can see happening. And my view is, is we're going to be cautious here. We're not going to speculate on that when it's almost unknowable where it's going to land at the moment. Hamish, talking about speculation, what do you make of the recent bounce we've seen the last couple of weeks where you've seen, as I mentioned, the, the sort of MSCI index bounce by roughly 25% in US dollars, um, you know, putting it almost back in bull market territory or some people talking about. Um, to my way of thinking, we haven't seen any companies come out with revised earnings forecasts. So to be able to sit there and say what wonderful value these investments are now because the future cash flows of them are just so cheap to buy. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering if the market is getting ahead of itself 
um, to some respect. What, what is your view of that bounce that we've seen? Well, first of all, everything that markets have done, I think, has been very predictable so far. Uh, initially, markets were fairly benign when it looked like a lo localised epidemic. Then when it started to spread and look like a global pandemic, markets started to panic. When credit markets started to freeze up, it got worse. When the central banks uh, moved in with sort of unlimited liquidity, markets bottomed out and they started to recover. Uh, stimulus programs got brought in and people started to get more confident. And then we've started seeing the flattening of the curve, which is a very good feel-good factor when we've seen a large rally to the point the market's almost pricing in no downside outside a few areas of the market in the energy markets and the travel related investments outside of those sort of areas stocks are off very mildly now that they've come uh, uh, come back so the market isn't factoring very much downside and I think that's really the psychology of people getting quite positive with everything they've seen um, I would say it's probably misplaced in all likelihood. We haven't really started to see companies report. They've only had one month outside of China, only one month of that activity. So when we started to see companies reporting in the United States, their first quarter results of so the first three ending in March, only one of those three months has had any effect. So the results aren't terrible. Um, wait till the second quarter or, or our full year results where we'll get a full six months then I think we're going to start getting a, a lot clearer picture about the damage being done uh, to, to businesses. Uh, and then I think people will be asking the question when we start to open up these or relax the, uh, the restrictions we have, um, is that employment going to bounce back? And is activity really going to, it's not going to be off 60 or 70% like it is at the moment. Um, but if it's off 10 or 15%, that is a very, very deep outcome. Uh, so I think that I think the the there is euphoria around flattening of the curve and the central bank activities, and the uh, and the markets. I think it's very and what the governments have done. That's very predictable in seeing herd psychology uh, uh, move here. But once our next phase is starting to get a reality check on first of all on the damage of the shutdown, and then to really start to think about how quickly we can get out of this. Um, and, you know, if, if, if it looks like it's going to be difficult, and of course, if we have to wait for a vaccine, we may be talking 18 months if a vaccine ever comes. I think the greatest hope for people, David, would be that we get to a therapeutic, that an existing drug, it gets proven that can dramatically reduce the mortality rate in severely ill patients. Again, at this stage, there's lots of stuff in trial very few and proper clinical trials. I would say it's very speculative at the moment about what the outcome of those would be. There's every chance that one will work, but there's every chance that they won't work. And if they don't work, I think we're in for a long period uh, 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 here. So, you know, and then once we start moving this euphoria phase to a reality phase, uh, markets may well take a, a second thought uh, around how long this is gonna take. Hamish, have you turned your mind to any industries or companies that you think are going to be permanently disrupted from this? Um, you know, from my view, it seems that behaviours are being altered, uh, people are, are in many ways being forced to uh, um, take on digital solutions in many cases or change their patterns and discovering, just as we're doing this podcast, 
for the third time, this is the only time we've done it using Zoom, um, you know, this sort of Zoomified where you've seen, I've had two, you know, meaningful clients, one that owns a, uh, a business that supplies and distribute, distributes uh, whole foods um, to, to um, health food stores and similar. And they, they took their whole sales team uh, to working from home. Uh, and he's reported back to me that that A is a lot cheaper for him. B, the clients are much happier. His clients are happier and he has much more control over his business because they're using something called Zendesk, which gives him, you know, uh, up to the minute uh, reads on what, if there are any specific issues within the business and the supply chain. Um, are there any industries which you've seen that you think may be permanently disrupted from this and may not ever be the same? Um, the, the answer to that is 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 yes. Um, the winners create losers here uh, as well. So some of the factors you're talking about winners, we could talk about the accelerated trend to online streaming of entertainment. Uh, we we know that long term trend is very negative towards broadcast television and pay television. This event may well accelerate the trends because it's adding an economic downturn to their advertising revenues and an acceleration of the cord cutting. So you may well find that some of those traditional sort of media entertainment companies are permanently impaired. But they were on, they were on the road already, but they're having an accelerant. You could think of print advertising. Their advertising revenues are going to take a large, large hit because of the economic downturn they were already on the way down, that downturn may be too big for them to survive. You could think of department stores as an accelerant here of what's going on if it goes on for long enough to online, to online activity. Therefore, more customers are going to migrate away from maybe traditional department stores. They were already facing challenging times, but this may be something that accelerates uh, their demise. There's other industries that won't go out of business but could be facing a very long road back. You could think of some travel-related businesses. Uh, I, I think sort of travel is going to be one of the last things to come back, and therefore their downturn is probably longer than most other uh, downturns. And there's segments of the travel industry that I think could be in for a decade sort of winter before behaviour comes back. You could think of the cruise line industry. And I know people are saying cruise line bookings are out up 18 months. I have to say that sounds like propaganda led by the cruise line industry to me. How many 70 plus year olds do you think are going to get on floating petri dishes in the near future, even when we open those industries up? And they only work if you kind of get 80% occupancies on those vessels uh, to, to cover your uh, uh, costs. So I, I think there's a spectrum here from businesses who are, who who's Demise was already happening, but will be accelerated. To others, it will be impaired for long periods of time because of a favourable change. But ultimately, they will come back. I would say cruise liners will survive and the travel industry will survive. It's just got a long, dark winter uh, yeah. ahead of them. Where department stores, they may not have a long, dark winter. They may be dead. Have you thought at all about commercial property and offices and some of these real estate trusts uh, that... You know, people are being forced to work from home in professional services at the moment. Uh, and that it may well be that people turn around. And in fact, I was talking, you know, similarly with a client or saying they were doing a, a large development for a new office space. And they said they now, now think that they only need to allow for a 70% uh, 
uh, of their total workforce because they will have far more hot desking and people working from home because people are far more comfortable with it now after the last couple of weeks. And that actually could have knock-on effects into residential property if people say, well, if I'm only going to the office two or three days a week, maybe I'll live in Kiama in a much bigger house closer to the beach, et cetera. Have you thought about any of the real estate effects or, or those sort of second order effects, if you'd like? It's not directly relevant to us in terms of investing because we don't invest in real estate trusts. Um, but we do think about it because the property market is incredibly important in terms of the wealth effect uh, here. I would say at the more pointy end of your question would be uh, the retail um, shopping trusts. Uh, I, I think, you know, because the acceleration to online here and many of the tenants may well go out of business here and won't get replaced, they're going to have vacancies. And the stronger retailers, I think, will be in a very good position to start dictating the terms. And once they dictate the terms, you could have very large cuts in rental payments to, to those. And that's not factored in their valuations at the moment. And that could be permanent. Uh, uh, here, then you get the flow-on effect into into commercial property, as you say. But and you also get the flow-on into apartment rentals. Much of the apartments have been built for things like Airbnb rentals, where people had investment properties out on Airbnb. If we go through a long holiday of of sort of travel being restricted, we could have defaults occurring in that in, in that end of the market. And ultimately, if it flows into residential real estate uh, here then we really start to talk that it has much more wide ranging ramifications uh, and would even have ramifications for us because that would go to ultimate demand for um, other goods and services outside the rents that these companies are generating for the real estate trusts. Changing gears a little bit here, Hamish, in the high conviction fund, uh, you actually manage the currency and exposure and uh, through this sort of roller coaster, the Australian dollar, dipped down to uh, around, it actually did trade, I think, at 55 cents to the US dollar. Um, how are you thinking about the Australian US exchange rate uh, and or the one and, and, and it, sort of what level of hedging are you inside that fund at the moment? Yeah, well, we, we, we haven't given people the exact percentages, but we have decreased the hedging in those funds during the course of this crisis. And the reason we've done that is really for downside protection. You know, the Australian dollar is not a reserve currency. And there are scenarios ahead of us that could be pretty ugly that we haven't yet seen. And if we get an ugly global recession scenario, commodity related currencies potentially have a lot of downside risk. Money will flow towards the reserve currencies of the world. And we saw that during the panic uh, when the panic was on with the flood to the US dollar and the Australian dollar was a victim of, of that. And therefore, we tend to hold our cash in reserve currencies, largely the US dollar. And in an extreme event, we would prefer to be less hedged more than more hedged. Because if you're less hedged, you obviously get more downside protection in the Australian dollars by being unhedged uh, to the US dollar and other, uh, other currencies. So we are still hedged in those uh, funds, but we're running lower levels of hedging. We took some off during uh, 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 the crisis, particularly on some bounces in the in the in the currency. If if risk continues to to reduce and we don't get a 
a, a real downturn here. The A dollar will probably retrace itself, but if we get a deep and prolonged uh, recession, even at 55 cents, we may not have seen the low on the, on the dollar. Which one's gonna happen? I don't know. But we don't wanna take the downside risk. So at this point, we're just kind of being very cautious about the level of hedging. But of course, if the currency falls dramatically to a level, we'd probably move to be fully hedged in those funds. Hamish, you talked about uh, commodities and uh, the effect you know, on, on commodity-based uh, exchanges and currencies like Australia's, but that turned my mind to oil and what's going on at the moment with headlines of uh, negative uh, oil's futures markets trading into uh, negative territory. And uh, you know, I was talking to a colleague and he, he said he thinks he can recall the Sydney Futures Exchange, somebody actually having to take uh, delivery of forwards contract, futures contracts of lamb and it being actually delivered. Can you explain to the listeners what's going on in the oil market post the, the sort of uh, Saudi-Russian sort of uh, tantrum over pricing and then what looks to have been a, a collapse in pricing that, that, that people can't store the oil anywhere? What, what, what's going on in that area? Because it's been in today's papers, they're talking about it being um, a marker you know, for bears calling, you know, other asset prices are going to come off dramatically because of this. Uh, well, first of all, David, I, I don't want to profess I'm an expert in the in the oil markets, but been following it. It's a it's an important element of what's going on in markets. There's both a supply and demand side to this uh, uh, equation. Um, obviously, it started this with a supply side that Russia and uh, Saudi Arabia decided they were going to put a su supply squeeze on by not cutting production and increasing production to get into a price war. You could debate why they were uh, doing this, but at the very same time, because of the shutdowns and the economic downturn, we're seeing a collapse in demand. Uh, Saudi Arabia and, and, and uh, Russia then agreed with OPEC to reduce supply after going the opposite direction to increase supply but the problem is it's a collapse in demand. I think it's estimated demand's collapsed. It's normally runs at about 100 million barrels a day. I think demand's collapsed by over 20 million barrels a day. Uh, and they're agreeing to cut supply by 10 million barrels a day. So that means they're producing 90 million barrels a day for a market that needs 80 million barrels odd a day. Mm -hmm. So more is being produced consumed each day. And that's the fundamental problem. And what's happening here is when you're producing more than is being consumed, what is being produced has to be stored somewhere. And the storage facilities are becoming full and you just can't switch off the, uh, the production that quickly. Uh, so if you get storage facilities that are full, what does somebody who's gonna take delivery gonna do with that barrel of oil if they can't sell it? They're gonna have to move that oil somewhere else where they think they can store it and that costs money. Storage costs money and moving it around costs uh, uh, money. And if you get into a squeeze that it's going to be delivered into a certain point in the system and that point in the system is full, it could have a very high cost in the short term for somebody to take that excess supply that can't be consumed on. And that's why we saw very short-term deliveries spiking deeply into negative uh, territory. But, you know, it's got a real problem. You know, if, you, if you're only consuming 80 million and you're still producing 90 million barrels a day, um, something's going to have to give here. Uh, and ultimately, more supply has to be cut. Either we need a sharp 
bounce back in demand quickly or supply is going to have to be shut in and no one wants their supply to be shut in. Maybe we can get the Holden V8 back on Australian roads uh, and, and help them out with some demand, Hamish. Um, Hamish, uh, turning to, you, you, you made a fair, in the main uh, global fund, the flagship fund, uh, you made quite a pivot of investment into China uh, not, not too far back. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts um, as how that sits today, given this global pandemic, which has shut economies around the world, came out of China and China, uh, it could be argued, um, sort of was quite swift, closed their economy down and has started to reopen. Interesting, interesting to read that um, uh, Beijing is uh, now actually tightening some of, to, to avoid some secondary infections. Um, how are you thinking about your investments in Alibaba, Tencent, Yum brands, uh, Starbucks, which was growing into China very, very swiftly. Um, how do you think those things are going to be affected going forward? Ultimately, these are long-term investments. We, we are still very positive on the long-term urbanization of China. And we're more positive on China's ability to, to, to come out of this uh, pandemic than many other places in the world, uh, partly because of their response, but also because they're an autocratic state and they can implement like contact tracing apps that are absolute, um, where we're gonna get where ours won't be compulsory. What about the data? There'll be no geolocation where China can actually find where the outbreaks are very, very quickly and stamp them down. So they can probably get their economy operating at a level that many other economies won't be able to, uh, uh, to do, but they are still exposed to the collapsing global demand. So I don't wanna say China's gonna get out of this scot-free, they're not gonna get out of this uh, scot-free, but they're probably gonna come back more quickly than most other places uh, in, in the world, but there is good economy and that's going to have some impact on all business in China in, in, in the short term. Businesses like Alibaba and Tencent are actually finding a bit like Amazon, this is an accelerant to their business models. Tencent's largely a gaming business and if you look at other entertainment businesses that are streaming businesses, demand has gone off the charts. So demand has picked up in Tencent's business for their main business. If you look at Alibaba, other than some constraints they had on deliveries, when it was shut down, there was enormous increase in accelerants of people wanting to take up the sort of online shopping. Uh, in the West, and it was happening in, in China. So actually, we feel very, very good about Tencent and Alibaba. At the moment, if anything, this crisis is, is an accelerant. Uh, uh, Yum and Starbucks, of course, shutdowns, that's affected their businesses much more dramatically than Tencent or Alibaba in the short term and it's gonna take some time for their demand to come back. We're probably more concerned about demand but in China. It's relatively small, it's a long-term growth in China, which I think is intact there. But in the short to medium term for a Starbucks, it's about when the economies will reopen because that, that's impacting their businesses. They've been affected by the shutdowns everywhere as Yum has been affected by the shutdowns everywhere. But once the economies open up, we're pretty confident that people, consumers are gonna come back to those goods, to, to fast food. They're gonna come back to McDonald's, they're gonna come back to Starbucks, they're gonna come back to um, uh, Yum Brands, to KFC and Pizza Hut and Taco Bell around the world. 
It's just they're in a phase where, where consumers are not going to shops. And in some areas of the world, their shops are shut at the moment. Not in all areas of the world, their drive-throughs are open. Um, so that's going to take more time. Probably the area in China which we've been more cautious on is our luxury goods exposure in China. LVMH um, and a lot. LVMH and, and Estee Lauder. Um, uh, that, that is because everyone's going to have an economic downturn. It's hard to... This has been an accelerant to their business models. It absolutely hasn't. They're not, they really don't have large online businesses. Estee Lauder better than... Uh, but particularly LVMH does not have a large online uh, business. And if we have a large wealth effect around the world, most of their products are fairly discretionary, I would argue. Great brands, by the way. Fabulous brands. So it probably would be surprising if you looked at our portfolio very closely to find that we may own more of Alibaba and Tencent than we owned before, but we may own less of Estee Lauder and LVMH than we owned before. So we're tailoring how we're approaching the China investments to areas in which we think are much more immune to this crisis or may benefit from this crisis and lightening up that are more exposed to sort of demand scenarios. Hamish, um, how comfortable are you with the financial statements of Alibaba? There's been those in the market that have said that they're very hard to decipher and uh, suggested that they may not reflect uh, the actual health of the business. Well, the, the first of all, Alibaba is a complex business. It's got, it's got many different businesses and it's got partly owned businesses and investments it has. So it's got a fairly complex set uh, of, of accounts. I would actually say the level of transparency they give about their, their, their business is actually very good and much better than most large technology companies in terms of the level of granularity they give around. Even though it's complex, they give you a lot of information uh, around their, their business and their management is actually much more open about their business in giving information than most of the large tech companies are in the West, which will barely tell you anything about uh, about their business. So a lot of the business in Google or something, you are guessing from third-party sources and get nothing in the financial statements. The financial statements may be accurate, but there's just no information there. Yeah, where, line, where, line. where Alibaba's, you know, they don't have the same audit requirement. Auditors can't go in and audit Chinese companies. Mm -hmm. So you don't, you, you don't get that. One of the big questions you have to ask yourself in China is, is what is the fraud risk? And we have seen fraud risk of, of, of Chinese companies. And it really comes down to our trust in the, in the management and our ability to third-party check the information. We can do a lot of third-party survey information about the rate of growth of users, about the rate of growth of revenue, about advertising revenue from many, many different sources. And actually, we're getting a very high correlation between our third-party checks and the growth figures that the company's giving out. So even though we don't get the, the same auditing requirement, we can do a lot of due diligence around cross-checking our management telling us the truth uh, yeah. here. And we feel pretty good about it. It's complex. And one of the reasons Alibaba has been cheap is because it's a complex company um, yep. uh, uh, here. But there are some Chinese companies that you'd be very wary around the fraud risk. And Luckin Coffee was a very good example of fraud that happened in a Chinese company taken to Western investors. And actually, it got uncovered by people doing third-party checks. Was the revenue real? And when someone went out and started counting customers and everything else, they, one of the short sellers said, well, the data doesn't add up. Well, we are doing 
third-party data checks at Alibaba and the data does check out to us. Good, good to hear and know. Um, you flagged earlier on, you mentioned uh, people like Janet Yellen that you've got as in advisory capacity to the business. And I know you've got some other heavy hitters, particularly in that sort of geopolitical area. How are you seeing this change the uh, geopolitical landscape going forward? Well, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very broad question. You could talk about geopolitical landscape in relation to China and China's role in the world. You could actually talk about the geopolitical landscape in the United States uh, around their elections and other countries in the world, what could happen to their politics. So I'm happy to go in any direction, I, David. I, but I, it's... I, I, was, I was probably more thinking about a Chinese, China's... Uh, role in that they were moving towards sort of an economic leadership type role, whether that's been derailed. And then secondly, um, you know, how does this affect the Trump re-election where uh, it, it seems that he uh, uh, was doing everything and anything to keep the stock market strong and he may not be able to control that. And in fact, you, it's interesting to note, you know, he's got people protesting, wanting to open up things and so forth. Insofar as it affects your investments and your portfolios is probably a good start with first that, that sort of Chinese, that thinking around the, the China position and then also um, that US re-election and, and, and from a markets perspective with Trump. Well, the China question's a, a, a great question. And uh, you know, as some famous people have said is never waste a good crisis. Uh, uh, here, you know, China ultimately, with their with their broker uh, Belt and Road Initiative and others, have been trying to use soft power to get more influence in the world, and particularly areas of the world where America's been withdrawing uh, uh, from. So I, I think you're going to see with this crisis uh, a lot of the West withdrawing to their own countries, and there will be a lot of crisis through Africa, maybe through the Middle East. We've even seen it in Europe, in Italy, uh, and, and in Eastern Europe, where China has, has stepped into a void with humanitarian support. And I would expect you would see that China is going to be stepping in more and more into voids in the world with humanitarian support and maybe financial support for these countries where the United States and other countries aren't present. And even European partners weren't present in Italy, and China has been very, very sort of vocal and the Italians have been very vocal about thanking the Chinese for stepping in and, and supporting. And you're starting to see it in, in Africa, and I suspect you'll see it in places of the Middle East, which is very important for their long-term strategic uh, goals. The question is, is whether or not the West, in particular America, can rotate the dialogue and effectively saying this was really a Chinese virus and start talking about they didn't do enough and all this damage has been done was caused by China and their mm -hmm. secrecy and there's even conspiracy theories going around that this was an engineered virus deliberately released. I think that's fanciful. Um, uh, but certainly their own actions internally may have made this worse for the world. So the question is, how do you weigh up their, their desire to use this is to increase their soft power and influence in the world with places like the United States actually trying to put the blame on this to, 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 to China. And I think China is going to come out pretty well um, in that because I don't think America is going to, people will hear their call that China was at fault here, 
Um, but people also like China's wallet and humanitarian support uh, here. And I doubt the US is going to step into that void because they've been walking away from that. So net net, I think China is a net winner out of this on a global stage, but the US is going to be fighting that very, very hard. Uh, Hamish, to wrap things up, um, I'd like, you, you've talked about that you've repositioned the portfolio. Do, do, do you just want me to ask the Trump question? Because I, I, I just remembered I didn't answer your full question. No, that, that, that would be helpful, yes. Yeah, yep, on, go ahead. On, on the Trump side of uh, uh, this, first of all, I would say that I think there's been five or six US first-term presidents who have faced a recession scenario leading into their second-term elections. And I think only one president won in those situations. So, so this economic downturn is certainly not a positive for Trump uh, uh, here. And he realises uh, that. I think you'll see Trump, he's a master at rewriting what the story is. Well, he's a, uh, he's a wartime leader now, isn't he? Well, well, potentially a wartime, at least he's made, the, he's made the damage worse potentially here, but he will now be deflecting blame. He'll be saying is, this was all China, it was released on China, and he'll be painting Biden as Beijing Biden, as he's already done, and, and he's weak on China, and China caused all this, and don't let somebody who's weak on China into the White House, so I think he'll be stepping that up. And from the health side, I think he'll be trying to defect blame onto the governors rather than on himself. But it was the reason this was so much worse was China lied and the governors didn't do their job um, here. So it's going to be very interesting to see how he plays those cards. I, I think he's, it's much harder for his re-election than it was before this started. I think he was probably in the box seat before this uh, started. There's still a lot of water to go under the bridge. I think the risk for investors that no one's really focused on, if Trump wins the White House, I think we get more of the same. And to the extent he can, he'll they the Republicans behind him, he wants to spend money, he wants to give a lot of stimulus, he wants to deregulate. Um, so he will do everything he can to support the economy. Uh, the, the issue we have is what happens if the opposite happens here, that there is a clean blue sweep. Not only mm -hmm. the Biden gets in, but they take Congress and they take the Senate and no one's talking because the Senate's sitting 52-48 and you have a third Senate election coming up here. But what happens if it flipped the tables and the Democrats got the Senate, the Congress and the, and the House, uh, uh, the White House, I mean. Uh, and there may be natural paybacks where we have to have a much more progressive agenda being, being set in the United States, starting to re-regulate industries and, and, and so forth and tax the rich and do, 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 do other measures. So um, we're focused on what happens if not only Biden wins, but we get an unexpected result um, in, in terms of what, where the power would, um, uh, would lie. Hamish, to wrap up, uh, I know it seems that you've got quite a bit of dry powder on the sideline in cash. Uh, I think you could probably argue there's probably a bit more if you need it, if you take into account some of the utility-like or very stable um, other investments you have in the portfolio that you could use if you decided to get on the front foot. Um, what sort of signals or what sort of things would you need to see, broadly speaking, before you, you would be starting to step into some of these investments as being 
dislocated to such a level that you think that they're uh, too good to pass up from a value perspective? Uh, well, th th that's a broad question. First of all, I'd say, uh, David, we've just gone to cash. Uh, and we've just been doing further surgical things in our portfolio to make it even more defensive at the moment. Um, you know, if, if we got a major sell-off and downside scenarios were priced into stocks, you know, our realistic downside scenarios were priced in and we had a margin of safety over those, we'd probably have no hesitation of using our cash. But I could say we're far away from that scenario at the moment where things are priced. There is very limited downside risk being being priced into things at the moment. So when there's not downside risk, why would we use our cash resources at the moment? We would only use it that if we had enough information that gave us real confidence that some of these downside scenarios were very unlikely to happen. Um, a lot of that is gonna be healthcare related. You know, if we had a therapeutic that came in, um, the problem is most people will know about that when we know about it because it will based off big clinical data not off some speculative press article. Um, uh, but if, if we had that data, we're a lot more confident that there wasn't um, uh, 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 the very downside risk scenarios, we would then reverse our cash position. It may be that that isn't in a bargain environment. Um, but you know, if there's great uncertainty ahead and we get a lot more volatility in markets and prices pass our downside scenarios, we would then utilize cash in those scenarios. And we have different style of investments that, that, that we have outlined things that are really high quality and defensive uh, that we would go into and things that are probably more economically exposed, but high quality um, that we'd really want to see some sell off to, um, um, to, to make sure that we had our downside protected there. Terrific. Thank you very much, Hamish. Uh, once again, thank you very much for taking the time during this uh, period that's obviously very busy with markets. Uh, I hope you and the team and the family all continue to uh, keep safe during this period. Thanks for the time. David, thank you. And to you and to all your listeners, I hope everyone keeps safe as well. That, that's the most important thing. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.